if you were like me, you got a vision during that song of the culmination of worshiping Christ. That every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is the Lord. I, I got a vision of, of, of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathered around the throne worshiping Christ. Now, I have for years, for over a decade, because of my reading through Scripture, been defining love as the pursuit of another's highest good. And I believe that. I believe that that definition is accurate. But based on the song that we just sang, and based upon some reading that I did this week, I want to to give the same definition worded differently with a vision toward the glory of Christ. Listen to this. Love is the labor of helping people be enthralled. Be enthralled with what will satisfy them the most. Namely, Jesus Christ. Love is the labor of helping people be enthralled with what will satisfy them the most. Namely, Jesus Christ. Because you see, on the day when we're going to be singing, Great Are You, Lord?, The only people who are going to be singing that song and reveling in that reality are people who have been confronted with the glory of Jesus Christ, with the ultimate kingship of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to love people the best, then we need to show them, we need to hold out for them the glory of Christ and their satisfaction in Him and in Him alone. Why don't we pray one more time and ask God for illumination. Father, Would you help me love this faith family well this morning by showing them Christ? And Father, would you help us as a faith family then to pursue people's highest good by helping them be enthralled by the glory of your Son, our great Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Himself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. We will be in chapters 2 through 5 this morning. 2 through 5. And I want to tell you that nothing says God is building His kingdom through chaos and crisis quite like chapters 2 through 5. So we, we have our work cut out for us this morning. There is no doubt about it. This section reveals the relational struggle that occurs toward a united kingdom under David's rule and reign. That's what it really shows. And last week we left off with Saul and Jonathan having been killed on the field of of battle and David leading his army in a lament, in mourning, in a funeral essentially, for Saul and Jonathan. And after he laments, after he he mourns and goes through this formal expression of gratitude for the kingship uh, uh, and, and gratitude for the friendship of Saul, of Jonathan, this is what happens in verse 1 of chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And and the Lord said, to Hebron. So David went up there. And his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. What we see, first of all, in in our passage today is a broken kingdom. 
to broken kingdom because right here in verses 1 to 4, we see that David is praying to the Lord. He's seeking the Lord's will. And the Lord says, you need to go to Judah and you need to go to Hebron which is the central city in the tribe of Judah. It's about 20 miles south of what is uh, going to become Jerusalem. And Hebron is the central hub here. And, And God says, go there. And once he goes there, the people of Judah anoint David king. And by anointing, it means they set them apart. They authorize him to be king over them, to be ruler over them. And you're like, well, this is wonderful. This is exciting. You're almost trying to think, well, it's about time. It's been many years, 15 years or so, when, when in chapter 16, Samuel had anointed David to be the king over Israel. But year after year after year after year had gone by, and David was yet to to ascend to the throne. And so you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is wonderful. This is awesome. The people of Judah, now that Saul is dead, now, now that things are in a tumult, they're saying, okay, it's time for David to ascend to the throne, except that he's not ascending to the throne of Israel. Exactly. He's ascending to the throne of a tribe in Israel called Judah, which is really his home country, his home tribe, his home nation. And so we're seeing how this broken kingdom plays out. Look up at verse 4 and follow. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I'll do good to you because you've done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. You want to know what's going on right there? First of all, David is genuinely loving the men of Jabesh Gilead because they showed showed loyalty to Saul. We've talked about that. I won't rehash it. But they, they, they preserve the honor and whatever dignity is left for Saul by rescuing his dead body off of the walls of Bashan. And they bring him back and they give him a proper burial as much as they could, right? And so he's honoring them. But not only is he honoring them and loving them at this time for their steadfast love, their said, their loyal love to Saul, what is he doing? He's trying to build a relational bridge, a kingdom bridge between the south and and the north because Jabesh Gilead is in the north and he's in the south and and he's thinking to himself it may be that this could be the way that we could unite the kingdom but we get some news immediately this is not going to be a united kingdom this is a broken kingdom look down at verse 8 what's the very first word of verse 8 but (laughs) but but Abner the son of Ner commander of Saul's army took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Say that five times fast. <laughs> and he made him king over Gilead. He made him king over Gilead. Abner crowns Ishbosheth king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin. And this is the point over all Israel. Ishbosheth. Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, church, there are a few things that we need to consider before we move to the next stage in this story. And the first thing that we need to consider is the the history that Abner and David have with one another. Can you remember when Saul and Abner and all of Saul's army are on the the chase, the pursuit after David, and they're constantly looking for him, and they're ready to murder him? God provides David providentially the ability to walk into the, the Israelite army camp with Saul in the middle and Abner by his side and take Saul's sword, his spear, and his jar of water. You remember that? 
And then he walks right back out of camp as all of the people are sleeping. And Abner, the bodyguard of Saul, is sleeping right beside all of this happened. And then David stands back on top of a mountain and, and begins to have a conversation. And what does David do? He calls out Abner. He says, you're the protector of the king. You're supposed to be the one who preserves the life and the authority of Saul. And I walked in and I could have killed your king just like that. He calls Abner out and basically places a curse on him. He says, man, you, you, you should be executed for this. And so you've got some hostility that's, that's happening between Abner and, and, and David because of that action. But, but more than that, Abner is like you and I apart from the Spirit of Christ overpowering our hearts. And, and what do I mean by that? Abner is seeking to build his own kingdom. Now Abner knows that he's not going to ascend to the throne because he doesn't have the blood of, of Saul. He's not a descendant of Saul. There's already a descendant of Saul. But Abner knows that if he sets up the right man, he can essentially be the king. He, he, can, he can function as the king without having the king's authority. And that's what's going on. And church, I'll just say, I think that we first and foremost, as we read this passage, as we understand it, we need to understand that there is Abner in all of us. We want to build our own kingdoms. We want to set up our own throne. We want to have power and authority and control. And essentially, we want everybody around us to serve our needs and to serve our wants and to serve our desires. And if we could set up a world, if we could set up a world where everywhere we turned was mirrors, we would be happy with it. And if everybody could tell us how wonderful we are and how great we are and could meet not only our needs but our greatest desires, then that's the kind of world we would set up apart from Jesus Christ and apart from Him transforming our hearts. And so we see a broken kingdom, not because David is a bad guy, not because he is inept, he's an inept leader. We see a broken kingdom because there are people who are trying to build their own rather than to come underneath the authority of God and his anointed king. The second scene that we see in our passage today is a bitter war. A bitter war. So there's a broken kingdom, and because of the brokenness of the kingdom, there becomes this, this bitter war. And it, and it happens between the house of David and the house of Saul. Between Abner, who is the leader and commander-in-chief in the northern army, versus Joab, the leader and commander-in-chief of David's army. And so what we see very first is, is that, that both of these armies kind of meet in this city called Gibeon. It's kind of a, a central point. And they meet in Gibeon around this pool. I did a little research on the pool. The pool is 37 feet wide and 82 feet deep. For those of you who come to, to Limbaugh Swim Days, it's 10 times more deep than our pool is. It is a really deep pool. It's, it, it, it is used for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is just to get water out of it and to enjoy the refreshment of, of fresh water. But, but they're around this pool. And, and so Edward gets this idea... Then let's, let's have our champions. You take your 12 champions, I'll take my 12 champions, and we're going to fight. And, we're, and whoever wins will be declared the winner of this particular battle. And Joab says, yeah, let's do that. And so 12 champions on 12 champions, the north versus the south. And they each get their knives, they each get their spears, and they go at one another. And the text tells us that they literally grab one another by the head and they stab one another Essentially all at the same time so that they all die. It is really a crazy scene, but it happened. And so what comes of that is that, um, I was going to use a phrase I shouldn't use, um, um, breaks loose. Everything just breaks loose right here, and, 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 and it's just crazy. And, and so there's fighting, hand-to-hand -hand combat, knives, spears, bows, as you name it, it all breaks down. And then what ends up happening is this long, drawn-out battle where a lot of people die, but Abner begins to flee. And Joab, now, now, now Joab is, is David's nephew. And Joab has two brothers, Asahel, Asahel and um, what's the other guy's name? Yeah, Abishai. All right. And so Asahel, it, the text says that he is as fast as a gazelle. And so he runs after Abner. 
and he's running and running. And Abner says, look, you don't want to have to come after me. Turn around. Go after somebody else. And Asael keeps going. And he says, no, really, turn around. Don't come after me. And Asael keeps going. And finally, Abner turns around and kills Asael, the brother of Joab. Well, now that, that's important stuff for just a little bit later in a few minutes. And ultimately, the Joab and his army continue to chase Abner and his army until finally they get up on top of a hill, and Abner says, are you just going to keep coming? Why don't we just call a ceasefire, at least for right now? And basically, Joab says, okay, we'll call a ceasefire, at least for right now. And they take Asahel, and they go and bury him in his, in, in his hometown, the town of his, of his people. And what the text tells us is that throughout this bitter war, that, if I'm not mistaken, um, 360, is it right? 360 of Abner's men die, 19 of Joab's men die, plus Asahel. But the key is that Asahel, the brother of Joab, has been struck down by Abner, the commander-in-chief of the northern army. It is a bitter war. And if you look down at chapter 3, Look down at chapter 3, in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Verses 2 through 5 also tell us, gives us a little hint, and good storytellers do this. Good storytellers often just supply some hints that are going to become more important as the story unfolds. And the kind of hint that the, that the narrator tells us is that while David is getting stronger and stronger, while he's getting greater and greater, and he's building more and more momentum as the king of the south, he's also engaged in what we would call sexual immorality. He has is, he is forsaken the idea that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. He's being joined to many women, and he is birthing many children and many sons. Now, in that day and time, when the, when the text is telling us that he was becoming stronger and stronger, part of that is that he has a lot of kids. And by having a lot of kids, there's strength in numbers. And that's what the idea is here, but it doesn't mean that it's honoring the Lord. It's just a little bit of a hint. And so, once we see that there is a broken kingdom, we see this bitter war and some would even call it a civil war. Why is there a civil war? Why is there bitterness that's going on? Because there is a jockeying for position and power. There is, there is this desire to be on top, to be first, to, to be most, to be best. And Abner is unwilling to submit to the king who he knows is anointed by God. Why? Because he's afraid he's going to lose his power and his position and his place in the kingdom. And so what happens next? It's what we're going to call a bizarre turn. A bizarre turn. Let's go ahead and read a portion of this. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong, great, big, in the house of Saul. Now see, there, there you, you have him exalting himself even though he's not king. And so Saul had a concubine, a woman who was not his wife that he used essentially as his slave in whatever way that he wanted to. Saul had a concubine, a female slave whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth. And said, am I a dog's head of Judah? Now, what in the world does he mean by that? He's actually just saying, am I a dog? What, what, do, what, do, you, what do you think I am? You think I'm some puppet? You think I'm a nothing? Do you think I'm, 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 a, I'm a no good? What? What are you talking about? He says, to this day, I keep showing, church, look down. If you're reading the SV, it says, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul. That word, that phrasing, steadfast love, is most often used of the Lord. Many of you know the original, hesed. Steadfast love, it means loyal love. Abner is using 
theological language to describe his actions and attitude in a kingdom that he's established for his own glory and not God's. I want to tell you something, church. He continues to do that in his life. And I will tell you what we are very good at. We are very good at ignoring God's doctrines and God's theology when it doesn't suit our own desires. But we are very good at using theological language and biblical terminology when it suits our own agenda. And that is exactly what Abner is doing here. He says, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet, you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God, do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. What does Abner betray there? What does he reveal? He reveals the fact that he already knew that David is supposed to be the king. He says, the Lord has sworn to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. What does he mean by Dan to Beersheba? From the northernmost promises of God to the southernmost promises of God that Israel will be. From Dan up in the north to Beersheba down at the south, may David reign over all of them because you have challenged me. You have come to me over a woman. And so... Abner sends messengers to David. I call this bizarre. I call it bizarre because over one little relational conflict, because, because Ishbosheth challenges Abner's rights. Abner says, I'm turning, I'm flipping. But you know what? When we build our house on the sand rather than the solid rock of the foundation of God's word, we do irrational things. His, Abner's desire is not a godly desire. It's not rooted out of a love for the, the Messiah, a love for God to establish rightfully His righteous kingdom. He's doing it out of angst, out of bitterness, out of anger, and out of spite. But church, we're going to see this in a minute. God builds His kingdom that way. He does. As, as astonishing as that may be. And so Abner sends messengers to David and says... He says, make your covenant with me. Establish a binding agreement with me that you will not betray and that I will not betray. And behold, my hand will, will be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And so what does David say? He says, good, I'll make a covenant with you. I'll come into a binding agreement with you. But one thing I require of you, that, that is you shall not see my face unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. And so ultimately... Um, Ishbosheth, the king, uh, relinquishes Michael. But I want us to look down. I want to look down at verse 15 and 16. And Ishbosheth sent and took Michael from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. I believe that is one of the saddest and most poignant statements in all of the Bible. A husband who has grown to love this woman, his wife, and because of brokenness and selfishness and power, hungriness, and all that goes on in the human mind and in the human heart, this woman he has grown to love and sacrifice and care for is being stripped of him at really no fault of his own. This is human life after the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided to walk away from, from God and His good plan. And so this bizarre turn continues to have more movements if you look down at 17, Abner confers with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. So, so bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I'll save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the house of Benjamin thought good to do. 
Now listen, what, what ends up going on is that David and Abner not only have a conversation, they not only talk about the terms of everything, they essentially ratify the treaty, they, they discuss the terms of it, and then David offers up a feast in order to seal the deal. This is going to be a done deal. And so, and so Abner says, I, I, I'm going I'm to make this covenant, it's going to happen. And so what happens? Joab comes riding in the town. He's been raiding. He's been going out and doing what he's very good at, exacting um, violence and, and physical, and physical uh, violence on people. And so what happens? Joab and all the army is told Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and he's let him go and he's gone in peace. And Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? But Abner came to you, why is it that you've sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. And so we have this immediate anger that comes over Joab because David is going to make an agreement, a covenant with Abner. Notice that Joab is not concerned about the, uniting the kingdom. Know that, notice that Joab is not concerned about the possibility of this being a good thing for the kingdom. He's just really, really mad. And so what do we see? We see fourth, this is the fourth scene, a brutal response. A bizarre turn and then a brutal response. Verse 26 and following. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. So here they are in David's capital. He has coerced Abner. Joab has coerced Abner back into the city, unknowingly to David. He has no idea about it. And so he pulls him aside, kind of in, a, kind of in an alleyway, so to speak. And, and what happens? He murders Abner right then and there. And, and the text tells us in verse 27 why. Not because Abner was uh, deceiving David, not because Abner had, had false motives, but simply out of revenge. You know, the reality is this, is that Abner killed Joab's brother in the midst of war. It wasn't an assassination. It wasn't some murder. It was in the middle of wartime. And as a matter of fact, Abner gave Asahel every chance to turn away. But because he killed him on the field of battle, Joab takes improper action and says, I'm going to exact vengeance, revenge on um, this man because he killed my brother. And if you are, th are like me, you're thinking to yourself, one passage of Scripture where, where God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. But that's not what Joab says. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so David hears of what Joab, his commander-in-chief, has done. And he says, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner. In other words, I didn't know about it. I didn't authorize it. I didn't want it. This is not what I have stated. May it fall on the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. In other words, I curse Joab and his family. This is an official action of the king cursing the, the, the family of Joab because of this dastardly act. And so, verse 31 David begins to mourn over Abner. Look at verse 31. David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier, that is the, the funeral procession and the foundation upon which the, um, the burial box was, uh, was upon. And notice the irony. David makes the men who murdered Abner mourn Abner's death. David makes the men who kill Abner follow in the funeral procession 
as an act of shame, as an act of cursing, as an act of we're putting you on display. You are guilty. I'm not letting you run to your house. I'm not letting you, you're, you're going to put a sackcloth and ashes and you are going to officially mourn the death of this man because you are guilty. And so what does David do? He did with the same thing that he did for Saul and Jonathan's death. He laments. He officially mourns over the death of Abner. And look at the poem that he writes. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore. But David swore. Saying, God do so to me. And more also if I taste bread or anything else. Till the sun goes down. This is David truly mourning the death of Abner. Notice that verse 36 says that all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased all the people. Let's just stop for a moment. Stop our reading and just kind of our walking through it. Because we see the heart of David here, the heart of King David. David in in the back of his mind and in the kind of the most private recesses of his heart, is not rejoicing. Many, many people would be like, wow, that's a tragic thing that happened to Abner, but it sure does pave the way for my my royal reign over the entire nation. He truly mourns because David, even though he's a man of faults, even though we're going to see his own brokenness time and time again in this second book of Samuel, he is a man after God's own heart. And he does not want to seize the throne in some deceitful way, in some improperly violent way, in some way that is going to say, I've seized the throne. No, he is a man according to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and then the final prayer in 2 Samuel 22, he is a man who is going to wait to be exalted by the Lord. He is a man who is going to wait patiently on God's timing and on God's anointing and on God's enthroning of him as king. We, we need to see this because church, you and I are often so impatient. We, we are so unwilling to wait on God's timing. We are so unwilling to just be patient in God's plan for us. We, we say to ourselves, I've got a plan for me, and I want God to have the same plan for me. And if God doesn't come through with my plan for me, then I'm going to usurp God's authority, and I'm going to take control, and I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. And David provides a great example By saying, I'm not going to do this by myself. I don't even want anybody to do it for me. I want God to do it in His timing and in His way. And so, we continue to read about the the, the brutal response. Look down at chapter 4. There were these two men. We see it in verse 2. Named uh, Bana and Rechab. And Bana and Rechab have been leaders in Saul's army. They've been raiders. They are violent men. They have been successful. And, and, and so what they are going to do is they, they, they are going to hatch a plan. They understand that David is likely ascending to the throne. He's getting stronger and stronger. He's getting greater and greater. And they're thinking to themselves, how can we fit ourselves in, in David's regime that we might have authority? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to kill our own king. We're going to take out Ishbosheth. And so they sneak into Ishbosheth's home. He's in his bed taking a noonday nap, and they kill him. They strike him down. They, they're, they're really courageous, really bold. I mean, they go in on their own king and kill their own king. And they cut off his head, and they travel day and night through the Arba and finally get down to David, and they present the king of the northern tri- 11 tribes head. And they say, here you go, David. We want you to know that we have taken... Uh, the Lord's prompting, and it was from the Lord that we took care of this so that you can become the king of all of Israel. And they did not know the heartbeat of David. And they must not have known about what David did to the Amalekite in chapter 1 for the very same reasons. And David essentially says, you don't realize what you've done. You are essentially cowards 
And he has both of these men executed righteously, justifiably, rightly because of their assassination of the king of the northern 11 tribes. And so, look down at chapter 5. After the brutal response, we see now a bold king. A bold king. And what I want you to know about chapter 5, church, is that we don't need to try to square everything chronologically here. The narrator doesn't present us, now this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and it all happened in a really tight chronological line over a period of months. No, what he does is he provides for us a mosaic. You know what a mosaic is? Kind of a, just a, a little a pictures and glimpses of different events and things that happen in, in David's life as he ascends to the throne of all of Israel. Okay, so let's read verse 1 and following. So all the tribes of Israel came to David. David didn't come to them. David didn't send his armies all throughout and says, I'm taking seizure of this land. No, they come to David at Hebron. And what do they say? They say, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, church, look at verse 2. The Lord said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. Keep your eyes, keep your eyes down right there. You shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. The people of Israel used the language of shepherding at the very same time they used the the language of royalty. Why do they do that? Because for years and years and years, they have had a king who is not a shepherd but a tyrant. They have had a king who is not a shepherd but an authoritarian fool who rules for self-glory. So they themselves bring in the language of shepherding and they say, God is our great shepherd. But David, we want you to be our tender under-shepherd. That you might lead us out. That you might guide us. That you might help us. That you might comfort us. That you might love us. That you might lead us and help us. Pick us up when we're struggling. Guide us when we need help. Encourage us when we need hope. But all in all, David, be our shepherd more than anything else. Because a true king is a shepherd. A true king leads, loves, guides, protects, comforts doesn't take the rod and beat people over the back with it. Be our shepherd, David. Be our shepherd king. And so look at verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. They set him apart. They authorized him. They established him as their king. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And so what happens is that David begins to act like a king. He begins to lead like a king, and he has a brilliant idea. There is this, there is this city called Jebus, J-E-B-U-S, or something of the effect as we translate it into English. And it is one of the cities that Joshua and his men did not fully capture and take over when Joshua was to go into the promised land and capture it all. And it sits perfectly, geographically, between Judah and all of the 11 tribes of Israel. And so he says, I'm not going to establish my kingdom in Hebron in the south because it'll look like I'm showing favoritism there. I'm not going to establish it up in Israel so as to shun my own people. I'm going to establish a new kingdom city that that neither group has ownership of. The Jebusites have ownership of it. And they are not a kind people. And they do a great job of protecting it because it's up on a hill and it's a fortified place and nobody has really been able to get in there and seize it because it is basically a natural fort. And David says, by the power of God 
And with the blessing of God, I'm going to take over this city and it's going to become the royal city. It's going to become my capital. And that's exactly what happens. And there's some confusing language that we see in chapter 5. And they basically taunt him. And they say, listen, the blind and the lame are going to protect us from you, David. You keep on coming to try, we'll, we'll take our weakest and we'll still defeat you. And David said, oh no, you won't. And David in his brilliance and his leadership ability takes over this city Jebus. And it becomes the city called what? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He calls it the city of Zion, the city of David. From this point forward, this is Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David. And he reigns there, and the text tells us that as he's reigning and as he's leading, there is a king of Tyre named Hiram who says, you know what, you are the king. You're exercising great justice. I'm going to give you resources. I'm going to give you wood. I'm going to have my men build you a palace. And, and, and David took it as confirmation that the Lord has established him as king over all of Israel. And, and look at down at chapter, uh, verse 17 and following. As David is established and reigning, the Philistines hear that David has been anointed king. Much to their surprise. I just wonder what Achish thought about it. David heard about the Philistines coming up. And so he goes down to the stronghold, wherever the stronghold is. We don't know where it is, but he goes down there. And the Philistines come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquires of the Lord. David prays, Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will, will you give them into my hand? And the Lord says to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. So David inquires of the Lord. The Lord says, Yes, go. And David defeats him just like the Lord says. So the Philistines come back yet again and they spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And David inquires of the Lord again and he, says, and he says, you shall not go up. This is the Lord speaking. Don't go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound, listen to this, the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees. What? What kind of marching can happen in the tops of the balsam trees? The type of marching that the Lord says, I'll have my host go before you. And I will win the victory for you. Rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the armies of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So we have a broken kingdom, a bitter war, a bizarre turn, a brutal response, and a bold king. There's a lot going on there. I want to ask really two questions, and, and then I want to bring it home for us, okay? I want to ask, what is God doing? What is he doing in these passages? What, what, is he, what is he doing in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5? And I think more than anything else, God wants us to see that he is sovereignly positioning his chosen king to reign in his chosen kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's sovereignly positioning the king to reign over his kingdom. And he's doing so Listen, church, he's doing so through bitterness and rivalry and self-promoting jealousy and anger and, and angst and revenge and at the very same time through reverence and prayer and righteousness and justice and suffering and mourning. We have this hodgepodge of God building His kingdom through all of these different things. And you're thinking to yourself, how can God do that? Why will God do that? God is building His kingdom through all of this brokenness and all of this righteousness and all of this reverence and all of this anger and all of this violence because we live in a broken world. Because we live in a fallen place where we have said no to God. We have said no to righteousness. We have said no to His good things and His good ways. And we're going to live in our own way. 
And church, Jesus said, I will build my kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what is God saying to us right here? God is saying, I don't care how much self-promotion goes on. I don't care how much violence happens. I don't care how many people kill how many people. I'm still going to build my kingdom. I'm feeling the need right now for us to feel connected to this. And so I'll just, I'll cut to the chase. David is but a forerunner to King Jesus. Now we see righteousness in David, but we don't see perfect righteousness. We see prayerfulness in David, but we don't see awesome prayerfulness in David. We see humility in David, but we don't see the kind of humility that we see in Jesus Christ. Because you see... When God the Father sends God the Son to planet earth to anoint Him as King and to establish Him as King of kings and Lord of lords, you realize what happens around Jesus? Self-promoting agendas, jealousy, anger, strife, selfishness, violence. It happens all around Him, His entire ministry. But not only does it happen around him, it also happens to him. As he's being set up as king. And God would say, nothing reveals my son's kingship more when he lived on planet earth than when he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross and a crown of thorns is put over his head and we see the epitome and the essence of man's rebellion against God and hatred and violence and strife and and, and harmfulness and and hostility all focused and and, and toward Jesus Christ. And here he is up on the cross and unlike David where it's happening around him, it's actually happening to him. And he's saying, I'm establishing my kingdom through suffering. I'm establishing my kingdom through death. I'm establishing my kingdom by taking the sins of these people upon me. This is the kind of king that we have. David and his and his kingship anointment as we look in, in the ups and downs and the peaks and valleys of his life right here is really pointing us to a king. And you know, the reality is that the, the, the scripture says that cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. The king doesn't receive near the kind of anointing that David did in either chapter 2 or chapter 5. He didn't receive the blessing that David did. He endures the cursing. He endures the punishment. He endures the death. So that when he rises again and people put their faith in him, people like me and you, we can experience the anointing of God. We can experience the blessing of God. We can experience the power of God. And we can walk around with more power than even David had because we have the spirit of Jesus Christ the King living in us and powerful over us. And He's for us and not against us. We ourselves can be the anointed. Church, I want you to take your Bibles And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. So the vision is of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the king who would come after the king, the one who is the ultimate king. If you look at verse 5, it says, One of the elders said to me, John, 
Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then if you look at verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I don't want to take anything away from David and the anointing that he had in Judah and the anointing that he had in Hebron for all of Israel, but it pales in comparison to the kingly anointing of Jesus Christ. And you and I can be around His throne and we can say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is our King. He is our royal ruler. And we bow down to Him gladly because He's redeemed us. He has ransomed us. He has bought us. And listen, we are now, this is who we are, we are citizens of His kingdom. We are children of His Father. We are ambassadors for His kingdom. That's who we are. David points us to Christ, and Christ is the great King. Let's worship Him now in spirit and in truth. If we would have been with David at his anointing, both of them. We rally around Him and say, we, we anoint You. We're going to submit to Your Lordship and Your rule over us because You're awesome. Do you think that David would say, you're right, I am awesome? I don't think he would have said that. I think he would have said that the Lord is awesome. Right? But fast forward a thousand years, And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He's praying to His Father. And He says, Father, I desire that the ones that You have given Me will be with Me so that they will see My glory. This King can rightly say, I'm awesome. (laughs) Because I've lived perfectly. I've died sacrificially. I'm rising from the dead. I'm exalted into heaven. And I will give unhindered joy. I will give unhindered blessing. People will know peace and grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and redemption forevermore. And so what I want to call you today to church is I just want you to fix your eyes on Christ. Fix fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the perfect King, that you may see His glory. Because in seeing His glory, you will find unhindered joy. Love is laboring to help people be mesmerized by what's going to give them the greatest satisfaction, namely Jesus Christ. Let's help one another be mesmerized by Christ that in seeing His glory we may have joy unspeakable.